As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Another special, special episode as today we are joined by royalty, guys. Royalty. None other than the king of Muslim Twitter, Assad. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to the Malcolm Effect. <laughs> Come on, bro. You didn't have to do it that way. Oh my God. No. Welcome to the Malcolm Effect. How are you, you? You've taken my throne, bro. You, you, Never. I, I, I've been dethroned. Never. Oh, I'm, not even, I'm not even in that scene anymore. But no, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a, like, a long time coming, seriously. Fun fact, guys. I actually have to attribute a lot of my intellectual trajectory to Assad, actually. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because he added me to a Twitter group. The name of the group I will not say publicly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was about, I think, maybe two. Are we going on two years now? Uh, it's been two full years, yes, at least. Yes, and I remember being on that group. Assad was talking about like, like Marxism and material analysis, and you know, in w- the ways in which we understand race. And I'm just thinking, I had like, you know, I'm there scratching my head, thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? Because <laughs> seriously, because I did not have that, um, mm. honestly, that that depth to understanding race, having a structural analysis and a material analysis of race. I didn't have that understanding. And and then I remember asking, like, Assad, he so kindly broke down things to me, introduced me to a lot of key concepts, and essentially planted the seeds, I would say, literally, for my intellectual trajectory. So thank you very much for that, bro. Of course, man. And and, and I'm grateful to be in community with you and grateful to have the opportunity to to learn with you. And it seems in many ways you've uh, you've, uh, transcended. (laughs) so i'm looking forward to having the discussion about how you know since those two years your own intellectual trajectory has evolved i know you spent some time you're are you calling me from cairo i don't even know no i'm back in the uk actually back in the uk right you guys got the football matches going on right now coming home it's coming coming home it's coming home home. you know i I'll put aside my American patriotism and a hundred percent. I told everyone, no theory, just vibes. I am pausing any critique of empire until it comes home. Yeah, yeah, until it comes home. <laughs> and then it's, then it's back on the grind. It's back exactly. On the grind. But uh, yeah, thank you for having me, Mamadou. You know, when you first joined, quote unquote, the Twitter world, <laughs> it was. Uh, I mean, it still is quite a mess, but I guess maybe less so now than it was. <laughs> It's the ghetto, but yeah, we love it's, it. Yeah, it's better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, for me, it was like, okay, this guy has traditional Islamic training, right, in, in, in the seminaries of Egypt or, or is going through the training, yeah. right? But it's like, you're not, you're not like weird, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're normal, you know what I'm saying? Like, and that to me, you know, is as sad as it sounds. It's like actually quite, quite uh, refreshing. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was I was grateful that you that you uh, were willing to tolerate my my abstract theoretical commentary on you know, all of the issues that you mentioned. And, you know, I've been rethinking through a lot of that stuff myself, uh, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just finished a graduate degree um, whoop, whoop, whoop. at Columbia. Yeah. Yes, sir. 
And so, you know, thinking about how that stuff, you know, the stuff that you and I spend so much time of our day reading, how does it really yeah. apply in real life? And how do we how do we bring that to, you know, to the people? And how can we learn from the people, right? Because like if we spend so we spend all this time in the ivory tower and we think we know it all, right? Mm-hmm. Because we've learned the theories, you know, that actually is it's it's gonna stunt our own growth, right? Because we're not gonna be willing to listen to others who don't have quote unquote the pedigree, right? Yeah. And so like ever since I've sort of, you know, removed myself from that academic setting, I'm I'm engaging once more with what one might call the real world and, you know, refining some of my own, I guess, talking points or, or ideas. And it's been really it's been really refreshing. So talk about that a bit talk about that a bit more. So you've spent, you know, how many years in graduate school? You know, sure. speaking about speaking about theory, speaking about a uh, learning theory. Sorry, then we're talking about like again a structural analysis. And I think just for maybe maybe our listeners, I think by now people will understand what I mean by structural analysis. But you want to go for a definition, a very basic one, Asad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Structural analysis, right, of of politics, of history, of so on and so forth, basically examines how you know certain, I guess social and political trends are mm-hmm. not a result of individual or interpersonal mm-hmm. attitudes, but a result of deeply embedded historical policies and systems, right? And when we talk about white supremacy, we're not talking about, you know, we're, or we're not just talking about someone saying something racist to you on the bus, right? Exactly. We're talking about a system that scholars have traced, you know, depending on who you ask, anywhere between 400 to 600 years. You know, some people trace it to 1619, some will trace it to 1492. It all depends on what metric you adopt. But the idea is that these are these are macro systems that have been in place for a very long time and their residual effects are felt on our on a day-to-day basis, right? In policy, in healthcare, in education, in employment, in housing, and so on and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having studied, so, I've, you know, just to give the listeners a background, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, been, you know, a lifelong New Yorker my whole life. My background, my undergraduate degree is actually in social work, and I'm trained professionally as a, as a community organizer. So I've taught it, taught it in community settings like schools and, mm. and, and nonprofits and whatnot on issues related to surveillance, police brutality, gentrification. In another life, I sued the cops. You know, maybe we can talk about that. Yeah. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the academies are things that I've been directly exposed to. Mm-hmm. And getting my graduate degree, my master's degree in Islamic studies from Columbia really gave me the theoretical scaffolding I needed to understand some of my real world experiences. So I got my degree in Islamic studies. My, my thesis was on Muhammad Iqbal as a decolonial thinker. Mm-hmm. So what I tried to do in my thesis was to canonize him, quote unquote, in a yeah. similar way that we've canonized you know, Franz Fanon and, you know, Walter Benjamin and other other thinkers of various schools of thought. And my, my intervention was basically to say, why can we not include, you know, a Muslim, a, a consciously Muslim thinker and within within the anti-colonial canon? And so that's what I tried mm. to do in my thesis, right, to draw from Iqbal's ideas and say that, you know, he actually made some astute observations about empire, right, from the perspective as a Muslim subject of that, like directly under, you know, British colonial rule, who was also... Yeah educated in the West, right? He made some astute observations. And I think that's important for, for, for people who are in the work of anti-colonial analysis to look into. Mm-hmm. So that was my thesis. But of course, a lot of it is like high theory stuff, you know? Yeah. In terms of like stuff on the ground lately, 
you know, because of the pandemic, it's been really difficult to get involved community. But one of the, the, the nonprofit that I founded and that was that that was surveilled many years ago by informants, Muslims Giving Back NGB. You know, we're working out of a community center here and we recently invested in a hunger truck. So we've been we've been going out and, you know, distributing food to to undocumented and, and unhoused people for, I want to say, eight, seven or eight years, like way before, wow. way before, like the mutual aid stuff became, you know, a hot topic. We were doing it before, long before, you know, people started talking about it in the pandemic. And so we just bought, I think, in a, about a year ago. Through community investments, a $70,000 truck that we've customized that goes, you know, every day of the week to do, or at least during the height of the pandemic, every day of the week would, would what we do, we'd build partnerships with local restaurants. We'd mm-hmm. buy food from them in bulk, right? And then we would distribute that food to unhoused people in, in various communities. And wow. usually on Saturday nights, we go, we go all out where we go to Herald Square, which is 34th Street in, in Manhattan, Midtown Manhattan. Uh, we distribute food. We distribute hygiene products, women's, women's products. We offer haircuts. So we have like barbers there. And this is like a weekly thing. So if any of one of you are listening to this, go to thehungertruck.org. You know, you could hit me up through Mamadou's contact and I can, yep. I, can, I can plug you into the work here in New York. We've also recently had our mayoral elections and other municipal elections. So we just elected a new mayor based on the ranked choice voting system, which some of you yeah. may or may not be familiar with, right? The idea is that you don't get to choose one candidate. You can choose several, in fact, based on your preferences. So you can pick one, two, three, four, five. And the way it works is that, you know, the first the first candidate, like you, you go through one round of voting, right? And the, the candidate with the lowest percentage is chopped out and the candidate the you know the others the others remain and then you go to round two same thing the candidate with the lowest number of votes chopped out and you keep going until someone hits 50 percent of all votes and they win the election and so that way like people people have the opportunity to be a little bit strategic you know you don't have to vote for one person you can vote for others and you know mama do you and i can you and i will you know, can also have a conversation about electoral politics, right? And <laughs> what, what, pur- what purposes that serves. And, you know, I think, I think there's an important distinction to make between hyper local electoral politics, like city council yep. versus like president, right? Because yes. like city council, right? You know, if you're running for city council in New York, you're going to be answering to about two, 3,000 people maybe, you know, in your community. And it's you're not going to oversee like foreign policy in Syria or or something, right? You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna oversee funding for schools, roads, parks, you know these sorts of amenities that you know everyday people in your community need in their everyday lives. And I think that's important. But yeah, so we had a mayoral election. It was a you know it was it was wild. Our listeners might be familiar with Andrew Yang. You know he was the one who got the most sort of online coverage. But he obviously did, he lost. You know literally the first night he dropped out. When they started counting the votes, the other candidates were Eric Adams, uh, Catherine Garcia, Maya Wiley, Scott Stringer. Just to give our listeners a, a quick overview, so Eric Adams is a former police officer. He was a formerly registered Republican. Yeah, so he his whole story is that he grew up in in Brooklyn, working class, you know, black kid who was beat up by the police and decided to, you know, the whole shtick, join the system to change it. Right now, here's the thing. Here's where where it gets a little uh, complicated. So. The thing with the thing with Eric Adams is that he he did this back in like the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. when like nobody was even willing to acknowledge the existence of police brutality against black people. So like in the 90s his politics would have been considered radical cuz nobody was talking about it, right? Okay. Or at least at least in the context of New York politics. Like he would be on the front lines saying, you know, that, you know, 
police abuses against black people are the new lynch lynching, right? Okay. Like these are things that radical activists say today, right? The, the yeah. new cl- the new clan, right? Cops are the new clan, right? He, these are things he was saying in the '90s when before there was social media, before there was any of this. So he's been riding the coattails of that, right? into the modern era where we've become much more radicalized on police and we've, we've become much more exposed to the severity and scale of police violence where like his views are now dated okay but he is able to ride the coattails of his history right so like he can point to the old guard of the black and brown communities in new york and say like i've been with you guys since the 90s since the 2000s now these are not communities that are active on twitter Right. These are not yes. typically not people who are reading Fanon or mm-hmm. or Lenin. Right. Mm-hmm. And Eric Adams, you know, if there's one thing that he did right is that he he knew how to communicate to them. Whereas the other candidates, all of whom were at least nominally to the left of him, struggled in this regard. You know, I feel like and Mamadou, you and I have had this discussion, right? Like as much as, you know, we, we hate to admit it, delivery counts for something. Right. Absolutely. You know, like. Absolutely. That's not to, I'm, I'm, and I'm, when I say delivery, I don't mean respectability politics. You know, I think there's a difference between respectability politics, which should be condemned and which should be called out, but like speaking with clarity to, to yeah. a community on their own terms, right? I think is if you're in the work of, of organizing, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in the work of winning people over politically, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to do that. And it's going to take a lot more than slogans. Right. And I felt like the progressive camp uh, was too caught up in sloganeering and really failed to reach these communities. On top of that, a lot of. For real. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. You're going to say something? No, absolutely. I'm in agreement with you. And I think when I think about like platforms like my own podcast or my Instagram, it's the kind of impetus and constant kind of dragging or, or, or pulling force from what I'm trying to do is exactly that. How do I communicate effectively what I'm learning and what you know, what, what the theory says, because again, I'm not going to go into certain spaces and, and quote certain texts and, and, you know, let's talk about this book and that book. That's not to say we have to infantilize like the, the populace. No, because I think, you know, people are just as intelligent as anyone else, if not more intelligent. I mean, having a certain level of, you know, having a degree doesn't denote your intelligence as such or, or, or necessitate you're going to be more smart than others, uh, so smarter than others. But I do say, it's there is that kind of disconnect where sometimes people who are involved in progressive spaces perhaps online don't actually operate in the real world and yes. time and time and time again what we're seeing by the re, the election results of Eric Adams or for example we in 2019 we obviously in the UK lost the election of Jeremy Corbyn and the conservative party like gained an outright majority one of the biggest majorities in a long time Please. Again, so like again, and honestly, if you were to be in Twitter sphere, you would have thought it was going to be a landslide for the left. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and I, and, I, and that's not to say I understand how algorithms work. I understand how, but you know, there was this thing of oh, you know, the left is winning, and and you you even today, for example, seventy five percent of young people believe socialism is better than capitalism, and you know, you hear all these things. But again, okay, that's what we are led to believe is the mood of the people but the how does that translate into into electoral politics it's quite opposite i mean right now we are reeling from the effects of brexit you know that was a and and the kind of and a, and a re-emergence of nationalism and a re-emergence of you know 
kind of this kind of bigging up of empire and this kind of pride of or this kind of jingoism that we see. So again, I feel like people who are in progressive spaces, I think maybe there's like a disconnect. I'm sorry, no, there is a disconnect, number one. And maybe number two, they're not spending time with the people they purport to represent. Yeah. So let me let me let me throw one wrench into this. Yeah. Right? So I'll give you an example that sort of speaks to why it's so damn important just to like meet with people where they are. So okay, Mayor Eric Adams wins the NYC's mayoral election. He won mm-hmm. with black communities. He won with Latino mm-hmm. communities. He won with Middle Eastern communities. He won with South Asian communities in the outer boroughs, which are basically the four boroughs outside of Manhattan. Right mm-hmm. now. Some people, the quote-unquote anti-woke crowd on Twitter, who are just as problematic and just as online, right? They say, "Look, this is a defeat for the uh, defund movement. This is a defeat for the abolition movement." <laughs> but now, let, let me say, let me tell you why that's wrong, right? Because many of the same people who voted for for Eric Adams as mayor in their local district, they voted for city council candidates who were critical of the police, who wanted to take away funds from the police, who were progressive. Mm-hmm. Now. Someone would hear that, like, how does that make sense? How do you vote for your, a progressive candidate in your local city council race, like in your neighborhood, right? But why you vote for the cop as mayor? Mm-hmm. Now, you might, you and I might see that, like, yeah. that makes no sense ideologically. But now that's the yeah. problem is that most people don't vote on ideological puritanism. They vote yeah. candidates whose names and faces they know and candidates who have shown up. The progressive candidates who won the city council district, they won because they showed the hell up, right? Mm. And not necessarily because they had the right leftist talking point, right? Mm-hmm. They won because they, they came to the local church or the local mosque, you know, and they spoke to the people. They distributed food with the people, you know, they showed up when, you know, <clears throat> there were, they were bigoted attacks on, you know, communities of color. Mm-hmm. They became a known face, right? And so, the conclusion I reached from this and other more astute analysts of New York politics have also pointed to this. It's not, you know, you can slay, save the slogans for later. Speak yeah. to the people. Sit with the people, you know. Mm-hmm. And if you are about defund, if you are about abolition, trust me, they will come to you. But first, you got to meet them. Mm. Speak to them and they will come to you. Right. And this is what Eric Adams did, but in a cynical way. Right. Because yes. he's he's telling he's telling, you know. These these black and brown communities that I am I am work, I come from working class background I support working class but you know what he's also doing he's having backdoor meetings with uh, developers wealthy landlords Wall Street you know like very big property owners these are the people who are going to price out our black and brown communities exactly. right so he's trying he's playing that double game right so he can speak to like working class communities using their own tongue. But then he'll go back to these, you know, what the, you know, the wealthy capital owning class, and he'll he'll speak to them. Just and just call me when we're gonna overthrow the bourgeoisie, man. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like that. That's it, bro. Like, like the, he's probably, you know, like I'm. I might be wrong on this, but I have a strong suspicion that out of all the mayoral candidates, he's one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, among them. Dude owns like multiple properties. He's a landlord himself. You know, he's, he's, he makes a salary in the hundreds, thousands. The guy is not, you know, salt of the earth, at least mm-hmm. not anymore. If you grew up that way, he's not that he's not part of that class now. Right. Yeah. Like no matter how much he will try to claim it. And so what I what I'm seeing in New York, right, happening is that local city council districts are becoming more progressive. Right. Okay. Our our borough presidents. So every borough has a president. 
Many of them are also progressive. Mm-hmm. Our comptroller, so the comptroller is basically the guy who is the CFO of New York. He handles all the, the funding and the money of the city. He's mm-hmm. also progressive. So what I anticipate seeing is that all of these progressive, you know, positions, right? All of these progressive, you know, council members and comptrollers and borough presidents are going to clash with Eric Adams in City Hall, basically, okay. right? And in a similar way that. Actually, no, this is, I was going to say in a similar way that the Democrats clashed with Trump, but actually they didn't clash with him. They enabled him in, in, in many ways. In so. many ways, for real. But scratch that, scratch that analogy. <laughs> local politics is much, much, I, my opinion is like local politics is actually much more interesting in many respects because of these things, right? Because it's, you, you have a sense of, you feel like you have a sense of involvement and investment in it that you don't have in, in, in the national so- scene and yeah please let's talk about like electoral politics then i mean yeah 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 yeah. i mean my position is i do believe in voting i do believe i did actually was on the side of you know the likes of angela davis and dr cornell and many others who joined as an anti-fascist vote my yeah yeah, i mean me and you both spoke about this my perhaps my shift from that today is i think it's just very important that because Again, if you're a thought leader, it's, it's different to just telling someone to vote. If you're, if you're really about achieving like a radical change, we have to be clear in situating what the function of this vote is. Mm. In, in, in the last election, the American election, the function of that vote was to stop, you know, what they said, the proto-fascist. Uh, absolutely. But again, let's not take our eyes off the ball. And I feel like I think it's very... I think as black people, time and time again, and Malcolm X said this, you know, we're speaking about like, you know, Malcolm, Republicans and Democrats and being wolves and foxes and mm. speaking about liberals. I think it's very important because I'm, I'm not too sure if I'm, so, if I'm sold on the idea if mm. all the voting power or all the organization, all the effort organizing is funneled behind Democratic Party. I'm not sure how, how viable that is anymore as a, as a model. Yeah. Um, because yeah. year and year, every four years we have an elect, we have an election for mm. less. And I mean, as Dr. Joy James so powerfully said that you know Obama was the first black imperial president. He wasn't just the first black president; he was the first black imperial president. And if you're and I'm someone who wholeheartedly believes that America serves as a uh, uh, presents itself as an imperial formation. It's, it's an imperial empire for me, especially in its foreign policy, especially in we have two, a two party system, this duopoly. But let's be honest, the majority of politicians are beholden to capital. Mm. So and, and, and are capital. They're not just beholden to it. They are. I mean, they are capital in many respects. So you have you have you. Have, so I think the option truly is you have like this full blown kind of white supremacist party that's very happy to literally rewrite history and uphold white domination and homogeny. And then you have another party that will, you know, give some reform and maybe, yeah, perhaps just give some reform. And I think when he's put in those terms, of course, tell them, you know, fine, we, we, are, we are voting for a party for reform. And to be fair, Dr. Robin, I spoke to Dr. Robin about it and I asked the same question, Robin D.G. Kelly. And he says, listen, voting and reform gives us breathing space. It gives us, because otherwise we're too focused on like, you know, defeating this person or we're being reactionary sometimes. Whereas when you have, when you're voting, so when you vote for certain parties that are going to deliver some reform, 
or maybe some, some, some relief, like, you know, and it's minuscule in comparison to what should be done, but okay, some relief. It gives us breathing space to recuperate, to reorganize, to reassess, and, and, and you know, kind of be stronger in our analysis. That I can, I'm, I'm down for. What I'm not down for is kind of people presenting, and this happens by people, I think, on the left, maybe not as left as I am, or left as I would like people to be, but some people will be like, oh, you know, so, or, or try to talk about politics, electoral politics, as if that's going to be bring about the revolution or as if that's the, like a radical formation which i don't think it is yeah no uh, you know I, I agree with probably all of what, what you said i like to frame it in in terms that you know when you're voting you're not voting for a party you're voting essentially for the the most ideal conditions under which you can organize you're essentially choosing your enemy right yes. that's that's what a lot of organizers frame it as right you you are choosing your opponent or you're choosing your enemy right you're choosing whom you're going to get to organize against whom can yes. you push whom can you whom can you you know mount a resistance against right and john Skian and 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 you know angela davis they've been in the game for half a century or more right mm-hmm. they've seen some of the worst depredations of empire that for you and i you know you know, in, in many ways are abstract. And, they, and you yeah. know, I think, you know, I, I saw some people like kind of writing them off or dismissing them. And I, I find that to be a little disrespectful, maybe if that's, I don't know if that's too strong of a word. But at the same time, I think the critique of electoralism is 100% valid, right? Mm-hmm. Whoever's in that executive office is going to be the face of a system much larger than they are. Right. Going back Mm -hmm. to the structural analysis. Right. Whether it's Obama, Trump, Biden, what have you. And we're just choosing this, the the face that is easiest, easiest for us to resist. Right. Um, Yes. The thing, the thing, you know, with with electoralism is that another analogy I give is that of a dentist appointment. Right. Voting in general. Right. Is like visiting the dentist. Mm -hmm. It's something you might do once every six months. Right. Or in America, we barely have health care. So maybe once a year. Right. <laughs> but you're brushing your teeth every day. Right. You're flossing every day. Right. Ideally. And organizing and building community and doing mutual aid and having reading groups and all that stuff. That's like the, the daily brushing your teeth that you do. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, once in a while. Right. You're going to go to the dentist, which is like, OK, now you're going to cast your vote. But that's not yeah. where all the, the work is. The work is, you know, in the day-to-day, right? You know, we don't put our dependency on these systems, but we can see them as a vehicle towards one end. And, you know, sometimes for some people's immediate needs, that can make a difference, right? Biden yeah. has, you know, Biden's infrastructure plan, in my opinion, is very important for a lot of communities in terms of our transportation, in terms of having, you know, actually, sadly, he's actually rolled back some of some of the, the provisions and the plan because of like conservative opposition which is like effing terrible but like you know the stimulus checks those help people pay bills you know what i'm saying yeah. like my, my my younger sister had recently had a kid and they're going to be sending stimulus checks out to people with you know with young kids on a monthly yes. basis right that, that stuff is important so forgiving forgiving student rent uh, sorry not uh, student loans is important right like if 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 you know biden clears student loans well, guess what? You're going to have literally thousands of, of young people like myself who are able to actually do much of much more of the radical stuff that we've been trying to do that we've been unable to do because of our debt. Right. Like, yes. you know, so that stuff is, I think, important. And that stuff, I think, 
particularly as an American, right? I say this as an American. I have mm-hmm. to hold my government to account. I have to hold my. I have to. I have to keep my government's feet to the fire, right? Without, like you said, thinking of it as like some sort of like rev- revolutionary vanguard, because that's not going to happen. So I agree. I agree with that much. And and locally, I would say that you know, particularly, I, I can speak only for the New York experience. But the New York experience is, in many ways, national news here yes. in, in the U.S. Socialists have found a way to you know really influence local politics, right? They, they found a way to make inroads into communities. I think that's very important, man, particularly when it comes to things like the police budget. So a lot of people don't know this, maybe outside of the U.S. don't know this, is that the police budgets are municipal. Mm-hmm. They're local, right? Yeah. Biden has nothing to do with the NYPD's police budget. Yes. It has nothing to do with the Chicago PD's police budget. It has nothing to do. That stuff gets handled locally. Mm-hmm. And that stuff gets put to a vote in city council. Now mm-hmm. imagine you have in you know half of city council members are you know pro defund or defund yes. friendly, right? They can put a vote on slashing the police budget yes. and reallocating that money elsewhere. That I think is you know screw the national politics stuff. The local stuff I think is really where you know that change will happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm much I'm, um, you know, national is whatever. But when it comes to local elections, I'm a much more stronger advocate of being locally involved. And that's why I've been tweeting a lot about stuff that's been happening in New York, you know, with like the city council races, because that's where our Marxist theory gets put into practice. That's where we actually can seize seize power and actually influence, you know, where the money goes. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I've been at in terms of like putting my theory into practice, it's like supporting, you know, these local initiatives and, and pushing for deeply rooted local communities and, and mm-hmm. knowledge of local communities. How do you find yourself in this leftist spaces? Do you find it frustrating? Do you find it? Because I mean, I've, we had a brief conversation the other day. I think sometimes people, and this, and this is not a critique. Like, I mean, this is a critique, but it's not an exclusive. Mm-hmm. It's not an exclusive finding on sure. people who, who are left are left identifying or left leaning but you know many of the times i find people look for identity within these spaces as opposed to you know what that identity should represent and what i mean by that is you know it's it becomes more about putting a uh, is it do i even know what is it what sign is it what's the soviet union sign is it a flipping angst or is it is it a hammer or what <laughs> yeah, i think it's a hammer and sickle some yeah. form or another it's about putting that in your Twitter bio. It's about putting, you know, I am this, I am a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. I am this, I am identified as this. It's almost as if I'm creating spaces which are like clubs, like, you know, yeah, it's theory, theory clubs. 100%. And I, think, yeah. and I don't know, I don't know I've, I've just never been someone like that. Even, even like, even within like Islamic stuff, I've never been someone who's like, oh, I must be with this camp of people. I must be with this kind of people. Yes, I think ideolo- I, I can't lie. I do believe theory is important. I do believe the ideological underpinnings of the group that you're, that, that, of, of individuals is important. I think it, it kind of allows us to understand where they're coming from. But I, don't, I think sometimes that can be a hindrance in some spaces where, especially at a time when the left is so weak and we're arguing over like, Oh, I'm an anarchist. I'm this. I'm that. Like, I'm sorry, but who really cares? <laughs> like, what does that mean materially? Yeah, yeah. Are you an anarcho-syndicalist or are you a, a communitarian? What's what? It, it's so. Look, you you brought up the perfect analogy, and I, I was going to bring it up. 
you know, you and I grew up in, in a lot of these Islamic religious yeah. spaces, right? And you'll, you'll see if you go to Muslim Twitter, some people have in their bios, you know, Ash'ari, Shafi'i, yes. Shabhili, or Naqshbandi, right? Like, you know, for our listeners, these are various schools of thought, yes. schools of theology and jurisprudence and, and spirituality within the Islamic tradition. And a lot of people almost turn them into like little cliques or, you know, cults, if you're being less generous. And... Mm-hmm. It's just it's an ego boosting game, right? It's a it's it's narcissistic. It's a, it's 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 flexing. It's you're not doing anything, right? By positioning yourself in that way, you you you're 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 maybe signaling to people that you've done your readings, right? Yes. Though I often find that people who who are very quick to, <laughs> they haven't <laughs> right right people who are very quick to drop these terms actually haven't done their readings, but like you're trying to signal to people that you're you're part of the in group. You know what I'm saying? But our job as people who want to mobilize communities, we we don't want to create little factions and in-groups, right? We want to create exactly. large communities. We're not building a clique. We're not building a cult. We're, bringing, we're building a community. You know, Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr.'s beloved community, right? That happens not through, you know, getting the right sort of, you know, terminologies and theoretical sort of concepts. I mean, like you said, that stuff is important to have a foundation, right? Yes. But like, I'm thinking about like, going to my you know my local masjid and being like hey guys are you guys anarcho-syndicalists or are you guys communitarians do you know your decolonial epistemology bro like they're gonna laugh at me right (laughs) because that's just not how that's just not how you get people that's not how you mobilize people man like you know what i'm saying like cornell does a great job at this cornell cornell you know, I have to hand it to him. Like he he publishes, you know, articles with conservatives. Like and he's 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 uncompromised and they know he's uncompromised. They know he won't, but he's willing to reach a hand out that far, which, you know, according by some of our standards, he might even be too compromising in that respect. But mm-hmm. you know, he has the record behind him. He's done the work, right? He's he's really, 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 really putting, you know, putting himself out there and actually talking to people on their own terms. The guy's a proper philosopher. Right. Yes. But you talk to him, you don't feel like you're talking to a philosopher because most philosophers don't know how to talk to people. He knows mm-hmm. how to talk to people. Right. He and Malcolm. Hey, you know, Malcolm effect. Right. Like people like that. Right. You know, they're not theory. They are they are the embodiment of theory. Exactly. They, they actually live it out. They can convey the theory to you in their action. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we ought to aspire to. Right. 100%. No. Absolutely. And it's something that I've said often and i think we i mean the danger in that and as is the case we've seen historically is that when we have single movement leaders which i think to be honest i think we're at a time and a juncture in history history where we're no longer going to see kind of this single or this movement led by single figures but that's not to say that they can be or should i mean they should be figures like Cornell, figures who are excellent communicators, figures that people, and I think ultimately, I know this is going to sound maybe a bit abstract, but I'm thinking of the companions who were with the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Mm. When, you know, they would say that they felt in his presence that he loved us the most. Mm. And I thought that's very important. I mean, when you're with the people that you, that you purport to be wishing to serve do they feel loved by you mm. because ultimately and i think it's very i mean it can sound very hippie-ish or sound very like oh you know airy fairy but i think it's very important and and, and i know i lack in that because i like a lot of revolutionary patients <laughs> i'm trying to work on it but i do try my best in terms of my immediate circle and my immediate circle is not as in just my friends i mean people who i 
you know, maybe organize with or, or try to share ideas with or who I'm in community with. I definitely try and engender or that kind of environment of, of love on each other because I feel like, again, when we think about movements, how many times have we seen, I mean, you spoke about, we can speak about you suing the police, you said that informants and things like that. How can we like save our movements from being infiltrated and, and informed upon? You know what I mean? We can't even, you know, that's one thing we have to think about, and let alone the external forces. But I feel like if we start engendering communities based on love and respect of each other, and not in the abstract, but as in like, as Dr. Cornel West says that, you know, justice and love, justice is what, what do you say? Justice is what... Love looks ten, in practice. Love like in, in, in public, exactly. Yeah. And, what, and, what it, and tenderness is what it feels like in private. Yes, and that's yeah, yeah, like yeah. the mantra that I'm kind of trying to be upon anyway and embody yeah you touched upon a lot of interesting and important points right number one you know the point about having uh horizontal leadership right we don't have yeah. we don't have charismatic figures or as many charismatic figures as we once had i think that era mm -hmm. has run its course and we're we probably now are going to see a much more decentralized sort of you know revolutionary momentum which has its pros and cons right it's like yeah. it, it opens up the space right for a lot of creativity right and some mm -hmm. people some people might say that it also it it makes it harder to have like concrete goals and so there's pros and cons to that but i think overall you know democratizing the, the revolutionary arena is crucial because we're not depending on a single individual right um, exactly you know and that individual if they happen to you know something happens to them like they get assassinated or something like that or even if they 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 just let us down right? The, well, the movement was not about them, right? And so there's that, there's that aspect of it, right? And then the other po aspect you pointed to about rooting your, your, your praxis in, in love, mm -hmm. right? In love for the people. And you gave a perfect example of the prophet, upon him be peace, where like literally every person he spoke to was convinced that they were his best friend. Exactly. You know, they were exclusively his best friend to the exclusion of others, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, you think about that, right? Like, think about like the relationships that you have. Do you do you talk to every every person that in your life that you engage with, right? Or at least within your 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 friend circle, do you talk to them as if they are, you know, your best friend or someone whom you love? Or at least do you extend to them that 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 kind of love? You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Or that kind of generosity, right? Even in your debates and your arguments, you know, you and I we get into we get into debates all the time, right? Like, mm -hmm. are we extending to each other that kind of love, or at least understanding of knowing that? You know, this other guy, he's, he's, you know, he has a different experience than me and I, and I have, I'm coming to him with good faith and I hope he comes to me with good faith and I trust him, yeah. right? Even if we may part, you know, part ways on some issues, I know, I know where he's coming from. Like, are you extending that love to people in your life? Mm -hmm. And that's something I ask myself, right? That's an important question to ask. I forgot you, you, you mentioned one more thing after that, but. Uh, uh, the corner West quote or? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Someone actually said something very, very wise to me, you know, on that mm -hmm. Cornell West quote that, so this is from a brother named Sahib Sultan. He was a chaplain at Princeton, mm -hmm. a Muslim chaplain at Princeton, and, and he, he recently passed away. I think he had a terminal illness. I think it was cancer. I don't remember. But, uh, you know, may his soul rest in peace. I mean, he, he has, he was reported to have said that justice without mercy can become violent mm -hmm. uh, or can be violence, right? And our tradition is not just a tradition of justice. Also, a tradition of mercy, right? When we talk about when we talk about quote unquote killing the cop in your head or thinking yeah. outside of the car carceral state, right? Mm -hmm. Not thinking, not thinking about uh, punishment, but thinking about accountability. And punishment and accountability are two entirely different things. 
exactly. right? You know, accountability can be liberating. Accountability can be empowering, right? Holding yourself in- accountable and being in community with people who will hold you accountable, right? Being able to admit that you made a mistake, that you went wrong, that you hurt someone and saying that I can do better and I will do better, right? And extending that grace to other people, right? Saying that, you know, you did such and such or you said such and such, but you can do better, right? Mm. Because you are better and that doesn't define you. You know, we're not going to take the penalistic approach to this. We're not going to try to punish you, right? This is this is not retributive justice. This is restorative justice. And how do we mm. practice that in our everyday relationships, exactly. right? I think that's very, very important. And I think that you're, you're, you're really tested on that stuff on places like Twitter when you see it, someone <laughs> post like a dumbass but, tweet. But, but to be fair, you know, I know we're tested on Twitter. But at the same time, do you not just feel like Twitter is a jungle, though? Before yeah, I used to, yeah. I, I used to feel like, oh, let me be a bit respectable on Twitter. But I thought, nah, fuck it. It's yeah. actually the jungle. <laughs> it's the yeah, jungle. Yeah. Honestly, you know, it's a different world out there. It's like, it's not real life. And in real life, you know, we're much different. I hope people are different at least. (laughs) For me, it's case by case, bro. You know, I've quote unquote been, you know, harassed on Twitter and dragged on Twitter sometimes for my takes. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a misunderstanding or a misreading uh, of something I said. And like, it makes me wish that these people extended some grace to me. So I try to extend that grace to others. And and look, I'll be honest, you go through my timeline, you'll see me, you'll see places where I've slipped up. You know, like I'm yeah. not, I'm not like, and that's the thing, like I don't hide it. I'm not pretending to be like the saintly figure, right? Mm-hmm. Embracing that imperfection and saying that I, I'm a work in progress uh, is important. And I think it's important for organizing. It's important for movement building. It's important really if we want to, you know, create the world that we, that we wish to see, mm-hmm. this is how we, this is how we do it. And this is, and this bro. is how, this is my approach, not just to politics, you know, bro. It's also my approach to religion. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like imposing is not going to convince people. You know, you know, shaming is not going to convince people like berating is not going to convince. Me. It just does not work, man. Nobody you are you, you are if you are a negative nanny, you're constantly talking down on this group or that group. Nobody wants to be around you. Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants to hear from you, whether it's political or religious or anything else. Right. Like no, nobody likes that. No, exactly. And I feel like as well. And this is why it's not about obviously you don't want to create, sorry, a a cult of personality worship around yourself and stuff but again it's important to have a personality and i think this is i i've again i remember being at some point just myself trying to like let me not be myself online let me be a bit like i'm thinking not why am i so calculated for i mean again you can be strategic in 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 terms of how you organize but in terms of how you portray yourself i know it sounds um Again, this might not be the best way to get people to adopt revolutionary politic, but how many times have I heard people say, I adopted this way of thinking or the catalyst of this way of thinking was literally, I heard a speech by Malcolm X and I fell in love with the man. Mm. You know what I mean? So, you know, and I think, and I think, and I think that's equally as valid. As yeah, it's yeah. not so much where you, how you start, it's where you end up and what, you, and what your trajectory is. I do want to throw a little final point because I don't really have, I mean, not that I have to cut it off, but I normally run my podcast about this length. But I have one question for you, because as someone who studies Islamic studies, but also involved in the leftist spaces, I do get a lot of questions from young Muslims who speak about this dilemma they face with, let's say, quote unquote, activism or leftist spaces and the problem it presents to aspects of their faith they might seem. And not the aspects where you might think, oh, 
there's like an antagonistic relationship between leftists, some leftists and some leftist ideology and Islam. That's a whole something else. But I'm talking about, let's say, and I, and you know, I hate to do this because it's this nonsense culture war that has been fueled and also practiced and carried out by, even, unfortunately, many Muslim figures as well. But, mm. you know, the whole thing of, let's say, the LGBT movement. LGBTQ mm. movement and you know the pronouns in the bio and I, and I get questions a lot from young Muslims saying oh I want to be an activist but I find this this thing it's not prevents me from organizing but it presents to me a dilemma because I don't believe my faith allows me to believe that way of life or or, or those practices or those things should be condoned so I'm going to mm. ask you, sorry, it's a curveball, isn't it? Sorry, but I do want to get no, your No, no, it's all good. These are questions that, you know, you have to grapple with if you're involved in any faith-based community or any community that might define itself as traditional and you're, you're, you're in the world, right? You're engaging in the world and you can't, you know, unless you're living in, 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 in a gated community, you're going to have to engage with these topics, right? Issues about gender and sexuality are not unique to Muslims, Right. Yeah. There are communities, Jewish communities, Christian communities, they're also facing these issues. So like the first thing I would tell this person is that you are not the first person to ask this question or to engage with this dilemma, nor will you be the last. Mm -hmm. These are questions that, you know, people are still grappling with and still figuring out. My first thing is there's nothing in your faith that prevents you from affirming the humanity of somebody mm -hmm. and fighting for their dignity, regardless yes. of what their gender, their sexuality, their religion whatever way of life that they are living, your faith calls you to affirm that their inherent work, yes. right? And that in itself should be enough of a reason for you, you know, when there is homophobic violence, you know, mm -hmm. being meted out on, on someone, you, you know, you should be able to say that this is, this is unacceptable. You know, yes. I, as a Muslim, cannot accept this, right? Yes. I cannot accept this, this demonization of, of, of a community or of a people, yeah. right? I, I'm not a jurist. I'm not a theologian, so I can't touch, you know, the theology or the law. However, I can say that our faith, regardless of what theological school you belong to, calls you to these things, calls you to be just and calls you to be fair and calls mm -hmm. you to defend the rights of people as best as you can. Right. The other thing I would add is that, like, historically, Islamic societies have been very pluralistic and very embracing, you know, of a wide array of differences and, and a lot of a lot of the siloing into various boxes is a result of colonial modernity. And so, you know, you've had people in pre-modern Islamic societies that, you know, one might describe as queer, right? Mm -hmm. And by that I don't just mean, you know, in terms of sexuality, but I also mean in terms of religious beliefs, ideas, you know, a lot of syncretism that existed. Now, that doesn't mean that it was, it was all acceptable to, quote-unquote, orthodoxy, but yes. it existed, right? It, there was a space for it, right? And I think that counts for something, Absolutely. right? Like, you know, you've had, and, you know, Mama, do you, this is stuff you've studied, too. So, you, you know, everything I'm saying, you already know, right? Like, you've had these very idiosyncratic, you know, expressions of faith existing <laughs> alongside what one might call orthodox or normative expressions. Right. Yes. You know, existing side by side, we you know, without worrying about state violence being meted out on them. Um, yes. And every human being deserves that safety. Every human being deserves that dignity. So, 100%. you know, if someone asks you these questions, you tell them, number your starting point is the inherent dignity and humanity of all people. Yes. Right. You know, Muslim, Jew, you know, gay, straight, 
black, white. It's the, it's the inherent dignity of all human beings that our faith mm-hmm. calls us to. And that is our starting point, right? Everything else is our, our details. Um, yeah. And so that's how, how I would kind of grapple with the question. Thank you so much, man. I mean, we could go on forever and, and I'm sure I'm going, to, I'm going to have to invite you on again because we have so much more to talk about. But I'm in kind of conscious of time and I kind of noticed that after, after a certain amount of time, people don't listen to long podcasts. I try to keep it um, as short as possible, but informative. This has been a very, very informative conversation. I will leave Assad's social media in the description of this episode please feel free to hit him up. He is someone that can be, you know, reached out to ask questions of, and he's a great resource as well. So until next time, you are listening to the Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, and until next time.